Welcome to my podcast, D Sharp Thoughts, a podcast about strong women with some sharp thoughts and great inspirational stories. I'm Diana Sharp, your host. I'm an empowerment and resilience coach for women. Today's episode is brought to you by D Sharp Coaching Services. We work with women to help them gain greater clarity around their purpose, redefine their goals, rediscover their voice, and execute in a more strategic way through our personal development and career coaching services. Most women will admit that there's nothing like having a good girlfriend who's more like a sister, someone you can share the most intimate details of your life with, someone you can cry with, someone you can laugh with, celebrate wins with, someone who inspires you with their own story of grace, courage, and strength. Today, I'll be talking to one such inspiring sister, Dr. Carolee Grant. Dr. Carolee Grant is an educator and entrepreneur. She's the president and CEO of the Center for Research and Equitable Development, LLC, which offers coaching and consulting services to help educators, students and personnel in education-based community organizations achieve research and equity goals. Dr. Grant began her public education service as a permanent substitute teacher in an elementary school and immediately thereafter entered middle school service. She's a 19-year veteran teacher in a public school district in Long Island, where she serves as a teacher of English to speakers of other languages. She has served on various school-based and district-based committees, including in leadership capacities such as the assistant principal for a summer program offered at the district's high school. She has also conducted professional development for educators and staff at the building, department, and district levels. Dr. Grant has served on several committees for the New York State English as a Second Language Achievement Test at the invitation of the New York State Education Department and Metrotech Inc. With extensive knowledge about the experience and needs of diverse groups of students, Dr. Grant has a proven track record of success as a multidimensional educator. In addition to K-12 experience, Dr. Grant has taught at the community college and college levels. As a former adjunct assistant professor of literacy education research classes at the graduate level, she taught new and veteran teachers of core and on-core areas of subject how to conduct action research. This included serving as a faculty advisor for students' action research studies, which they conducted in Long Island and New York City schools. To further her passion for education, research, linguistics, and transformative leadership, Dr. Grant has presented at local, national, and international conferences. She presented at the Society for Caribbean Linguistics Biennial Conference in Jamaica in 2016, a complicated conversation series workshop at Queens College in 2016, the American Educational Research Association ERA annual meeting in New York City in 2018, and the World Education Research Association focal meeting in Japan in 2019. She has also served as a session chair for the Wera 2019 Focal Meeting in Japan. She has peer-reviewed journal submissions for the Caribbean Journal of Education, and she has peer-reviewed conference submissions for Wera and ERA. She's currently pursuing publication options. Dr. Grant is a member of several related professional organizations. 
She has a PhD specializing in educational leadership obtained at Concordia University in Chicago. She also has a certificate of advanced study in educational leadership and administration from the College of St. Rose in Albany, New York, as well as a Master of Arts degree and a Bachelor of Arts degree, both from Queens College City University of New York. She has New York State certifications as a teacher of English to speakers of other languages, school attendance teacher, school building leader, and school district leader. Dr. Grant considers herself to be a transformative education leader, and she firmly believes that transformative leadership, teaching, and learning are core elements in a socially just education system, quoting Bosk, Kose, and Lim and Shields. She's committed to eliciting excellence and equity in education. Carly, welcome to my podcast. How are you doing today? I am doing well, Diana, and I thank you so much for your lovely invitation. It's my absolute pleasure to have you. Carly, today I want you to talk to our listeners about who you are. Behind the profile of educator, researcher, those are two really great things that you do and that you're well known for, thought leader, entrepreneur running your own business, your own research center, mom and wife. How do you define yourself? Wow, I define myself as a transformative leader, whether it's uh, in my personal life or in my professional life. I have always been one who, you know, would look at what the current circumstances are, whether it's for me or for others or for systems and ask, does it really have to be that way? Yes. If not, what can I or what can we do collectively to change it? So yeah, if I could pick one word of several, I would say um, a transformative uh, lead, a phrase, a transformative leader. That's amazing. So behind all the roles you play in your personal and professional sphere, you're always looking to improve things, mm-hmm. always looking to transform the lives of others. And you have done so passionately as a teacher. Can you talk to, to us about what that has been like for you? Well, uh, I don't really want to date myself, but age is good. Um, One of the most profound things have been seeing the students that I taught in sixth grade come back to visit um, and just share how I have impacted them. Mind you, they've impacted me as well. I remember, for example, there was a particular sixth grade and when he was in the 12th grade, we um, invited him along with some of the former students. I teach English language learners in the middle school setting. I've done other things as well. And that year when he was in sixth grade, I had given them some little trinkets, which included some little um, phrases of um, inspiration. And he, he came with it, he said, look, I have it on my keychain. I just wanted to share with you that I still have it. Six years later? Six years later. And he said, and I'm keeping this for life. And so it was so profoundly touching. Another time I was headed to my car and then a car zoomed into the the school's parking lot and a young lady in a nurse's uniform jumped out and ran and just grabbed me in a big hug. And it was like, oh my God, (laughs) you know, here she is a nurse. just giving me a hug on her way from work because she happened to see me going towards my car. And just, you know, sometimes I see them in the grocery store, uh, you know, when I'm in the neighborhood. I used to live in the neighborhood where I teach as well. And so that 
seeing a little bit, you know, teachers plant a seed and we don't always get to see our students later on in life. Yes. But just having that experience has been so tremendously fulfilling to me. Amazing. So one of your teachings is passion and the other is transforming lives. But what are some of your other passions and your likes and your uniquely you traits, the thing that the things that make you carry? I love to dance. Mm. Uh, I didn't I know that. <laughs> I did not know that. That's an interesting <laughs> fact I'm learning today. I did not know yes, that. In, in, in my youth, and I do mean my youth, I was known to do a, a thing or too much to the chagrin of my mother from time to time. But look, that was probably genetics. Um, but I enjoy singing. I, I just love everything um, musical. I enjoy um, the ocean. Uh, I enjoy uh, telling and receiving jokes, like a good belly laugh. Uh, it, it works wonders for my soul. I enjoy um, friendships. I enjoy reading. I enjoy so many things. But those are among the, the chief things that I enjoy. That's amazing. Um, what's the thing that gets you up in the morning and keep you up at night? What's your purpose? What's the one thing you live to fulfill each day? Knowing or hoping to create a better life for my daughter. Yes. You know, you know, I was doing my ancestry research and it unearthed us, it unearthed so much, um, so many emotions. You know, there are family members that I was, uh, I was, I was blessed to see a lot of my extended uh, extended family members when I was younger. As, like for example, my great grand aunt. So there was a time when there were four generations of us and I was blessed to see that. So I have been filling in the gaps for myself through ancestry research. And I have been sure to share that with my daughter. On my father's side of the family, I knew next to, not, next to nothing about them, comparatively speaking. And my father is deceased. So, that has been such a push to um, A, discover, and B, to share it with my, my daughter. And um, one of my greatest hopes is, you know, as I'm human, that I will set an example for my daughter, good, yes. bad, and otherwise, because we're not perfect. Right. But that as she continues to become her own self, she will do even greater things and, and be even more fulfilled you know, as she, you know, explores life and what it has to offer. So what really gets me up is doing what I can to be a better person. Yes. And to set a better example in my humanness daily for my daughter and not just for my daughter, but for my nieces, my nephews, near and far, and for all people I come in contact with. That's an amazing purpose to make this world a better place for the people who we're close to but just for the other lives that we touch daily. That's amazing. If we, I think if we all strived to do that in our own way, to be more kind, to be more thoughtful, to be more respectful, to know who we are, even that discovering that you're doing, um, it grounds us um, in terms of what are the different legacies and the different you know, intrinsic values that we have and skills that we have that we can share and pass on. And I think that's just great. Um, you have many gifts and many talents. How did you unearth um, the gifts you have? Especially, I believe you have a gift for teaching. Um, you have a gift for understanding your students, advocating for them, finding the humor in what they do. How did you unearth um, these gifts and talents that you have? It's funny because I always knew I wanted to be a teacher when I was younger, really, really young. Well, first of all, school was always a thing for me. I remember being extremely young, 
I had to be younger than three years old and I yearned to go to school. There was a school where I was living at the bottom of the street. This was in um, Kingston, Jamaica. Yes. And man, I would just look at that building with Wang and I could hardly wait to be there. So the idea of going to school, which is something that was always a part of me. I mean, I don't know how or why. Of course, my parents um, you know, were instrumental in that as well, as well as my grandmother and other family members. And so I went to school and I had a rather interesting first day be moved from place to place to place to place to place. And then I finally stayed with this lady called Miss, Miss Gunther. I never forgot her. I have a picture with her, my very first teacher. I was three at that time. And then I used to teach the, um, the chairs, the furniture in the house. I used to teach the, the trees outside. Um, I used to teach any animal uh, that we had any pet. And so that was that, <laughs> you know, but I never, when I first went to college and I started, I went to college in Jamaica and then here, I never went into teaching at first. I did computer studies. And then even when I migrated to the United States, I did computer studies as well. And then there, there came a pivotal moment. And I'm like, I'm just going to switch to teaching. I'm going to uh, particularly teaching English to speakers of other languages because I was interested in teaching um, students English and also learning other languages as well. So that's, that was a, a fascinating change for me. So it was just all probably in my DNA for all I know, because I, I never not wanted to be an educator. And then throughout the years, I've had um, through observations, I learned what to do and also what not to do. And, you know, some mentor teachers throughout high school, right, primary school in Jamaica, high school in Jamaica, um, first uh, college experience in Jamaica couple of uh, people in, in uh, when I first went to college in Queens, Queens College. And some of them were really instrumental. I remember one particular professor in my graduate studies when I did my master's, I remember looking at her and I was like, well, where was she all my life, <laughs> you know? And so she was also instrumental in just helping me understand what um, fleshing out the, the, the things I was, uh, that I was interested in yes. and also actually helping me frame my my idea of what I could do for dissertation uh, when that time arose. So those are some experiences that helped me dig out those talents. Nice. Also ongoing professional development because nice. I believe a teacher never stops learning. So I've dedicated every single year to learning new things for nice. my profession and to stretch myself. So that as well. Sorry. That's a big takeaway. Remind me of that at the very end. That's a huge takeaway ongoing learning and professional development. Um, I saw someone made a post yesterday, um, being a teacher herself. I mean, she spoke about just the value of pursuing your passion more than just the money um, and the need to work on your craft. And once you perfect yeah. your craft, then that will begin to open up doors for you and amazing opportunities. And I think that leads you, the kind of discipline that you apply to your studies and to your professional development, then it leads you to bigger things. It leads you to further studies and to a PhD, which we'll talk more about. And it leads you then to opening your own business because you have the discipline and the fortitude to keep going, even when things get tough. What was it like growing up in Jamaica? Was it a good adventure um, or was it an uphill climb? Both. 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 Yes. Um, you know, my parents were divorced when I was quite young. I was a little over a year old. So there was that. And so... Um, but my mother was the strength of our household, you know? 
Um, and so with her, we went to things like the pantomime every year. I mean, we would take a bus to go. And then by the time it was finished, we'd take a taxi to go home, but we are going to the pantomime. Um, we also went to the festivals, you know, the national, um, you know, when we had Independence Day festival and so on and so forth. So we were very culturally aware. My mother also sang with the National Chorale of Jamaica. So nice. we went to their events and look, like I said, we would take, uh, you know, we take public transportation because that's what we, that's what we had, but we did not allow uh, that to have us miss out on these opportunities. Church was an instrumental part. We went to, I was in the Pathfinder Club. Um, so it's a youth arm of the church, very involved in church choir, church choirs, you know, youth choir, junior choir, et cetera. Um, we went on church trips. A lot of times sitting, you know, around our grandmother and great grandmother hearing stories of when, when they were younger. And those stories have come to light now that I'm looking up the places where they, you know, lived and um, the people they told me about, I was like, wow. And so there was that, you know, then there were also the uphill challenges of navigating life as a child of divorced parents. Um, the other piece of it, you know, cause you know, you are, no matter who you are, you have um, two parents. Right. Um, as, but the beautiful thing is I have half siblings. I don't call them half siblings, even though right. technically they are my father's children. And he ensured that we met them all and I love them all. And so there were so many blessings, you know. Uh, my father was well-educated, yeah. had his great moments, had his not so great moments. I owe who I am to him too. You know, I've learned over time too that everything makes you who you are. As it comes to and you can choose to yeah. rise from it or you can choose to remain, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a certain state. And so I've learned over time to be at peace, and to just enjoy the other day, I said to myself, hmm, I actually wrote, I am my parent's child because yes. I'm embracing what he has passed on to me too. And that's something I think, you know, we can all do. And um, may he continue to sleep in peace. Yeah. Which one of you were the singers, yourself or Anne? Both of no, us. One of you sing. She was the I shy one. Who sings, right? Yes, yes. Both of us, and we got that from um, daddy as well. He had an amazing tenor voice, so we got that from both parents, I imagine, but we both sing. Okay, nice. So you got your artistic side from both parents, yeah. um, your industrious qualities from both mom and dad. Your dad had a business, a successful yeah. one, more than one businesses, in yes. fact. Um, and so that was instilled in you, values of hard work, values of you know integrity, values of industriousness. Um, and, and so that was a good good balance, you know, of rounded social interaction, good spiritual upbringing. And then as always, you know, there are some challenges which help to keep us yes. human and make us stronger. Um, yes. How did your parents view the role of education? Was priority given to your education even here in Jamaica? Yes, um, they did. Um, because I did not live with dad, he, you know, support is presented in different ways. Right. Um, but he always underscored the need for um, education. He had many, many gifts himself. Um, 
my mother, he was an, uh, a business owner uh, in the finance and accounting sector. He was a pilot. Uh, he you know, had so many other things that he was pretty good with. He could cook. Yes. Um, my mother, uh, it was a, she's a retired nurse. She was a nurse then. And one of the things too was when we were younger, she actually continued her education um, at UWE. So, you know, we would see pictures of her at Kinston School of Nursing. She was a nursing educator at one point, so she taught nurses. So we just grew up around that, you know, understanding the value of hard work and um, education from both parents. Amazing, amazing upbringing. What was your transition to the USC like? What were the uh, lessons that you learned in Jamaica that helped to make this transition smooth or not so smooth? That transition was a little crazy, to be honest, because Vera was minding my own business. Let me fix that up. <laughs> um, it happened suddenly. Yeah. Um, I graduated, you know, um, my mother came down for my graduation ceremony. So we finished, how it was, I went to CAST, the College of Arts, Science and Technology, which is now the University of Technology. And yeah. so my program ended, I believe, in July, and they only had graduation, the, the actual ceremony in March at the time. So my mother came down in the March and she's like, oh, by the way, you have um, an appointment at the US Embassy. Now we knew, you know, she was filing stuff because she was already here in the United States. And we're like, wait, what? And that was March. I was in the United States in May wow. with a green card because things just happened so quickly. So I was like, what? You know, uh, I had to expedite my passport, which had expired there, my Jamaican passport and stuff like that. So I experienced a bit of culture shock, to be honest with you. And I remember days when my sister would hold me by the neck and snatch me out of the path of oncoming traffic because, you know, you're used to looking on the other side of the road. Yes. So yes. that transition was a little interesting. And um, one thing I learned is that it is important to have closure yeah. when you're going from one to the next um, to say goodbye or see you later to things, to people, to places even. Um, as you're switching to someplace else. Um, of course, the English, we, we, you know, both, well, US does not have an official language, right? People think it's English, but it's not. Jamaica, the official language is English, but it's, uh, there are differences. Um, right. There are differences in uh, how the food is seasoned, as you know, there are differences in um, how they drive. And, even though I was 20 years old at the time, yes. I still experienced culture shock, not even knowing that it was culture shock. And I really was homesick for a while. And then I eventually made peace with that. So what I learned was, again, to answer your question, the importance of making peace yes. and having closure. I actually had to resign from the job I left there because I thought I was going to come, you know, when the green card came in, I would go back, finish up that year, come back in the summer, yeah. you know, resign officially. I had sent a letter of resignation from here to there. So, you know, that had its, its place, but it helped me understand for people. Because now I teach students who have also left from other places yes. through different means, right? And through different um, methods, some prepared, some not so prepared. So the lessons I learned was be at peace, right. continue your education. Don't let anything stop you, um, help others. Because sometimes, as you know, your experiences, you have them 
to also help others who may go through it later. Right, absolutely, absolutely. That's so powerful. That is just so powerful. And if more of us could take on some of those, you know, critical values, ongoing education, um, be at peace with yourself, you know, seeking closure, even saying goodbye, um, just the people, places and things. That's one of the things I, I, I didn't get a chance to do when I was going away and it fractured some friendships. So what you're saying is truly powerful, more than, more than just on the surface of how it sounds. It's a powerful life lesson in terms of our relationships or places of work um, or friendships. Even sometimes, um, we, sometimes we're at a place in our workplace where we think we just wanna move on. I'm just so over it. And we don't say goodbye in the right way. We don't give respect to the memories and the relationships that we had. And sometimes we just move on. But some of those relationships, you need them in the future. And it's the same thing when we leave from one country to another. How do you take care of the relations you have and not severing ties while you form new bonds when you go to new places? So I really, really like that. Um, what was one thing you wish you knew before you migrated? I wish I knew the education system here better than I did um, when I first migrated because it caused a little bit of a delay. Um, my priority when I migrated was to go to work, right? Yes. And what I learned was just because you have a certain level of education there, because by then I had my two-year degree in computer studies, it doesn't mean that all places will accept you um, for what you bring to the table, all right, because of where you're from. Uh, your, your skills may be questioned. And so um, you have to shift. There are many people, if you speak with them, they may have been working in a certain position um, in their country of origin. And when they come here, and I, I don't want to say in a negative, I don't want to, to be misunderstood when I say take a step down, because no, no job is beneath any other job, right? Thanks. But it's like, um, you kind of have to shift gears a little bit Absolutely. before you can shift forward. So I, so I went through that. And then when I got into the school system, you know, you, you have people who are supposed to be there for academic advisement, but I had to do a lot of the groundwork, surprisingly, for a school that was very, uh, very diverse and had people from all over the world, I had to do a lot of the legwork to try to ensure that the credits I had uh, in my college in Jamaica were accepted here or which ones were accepted. I had to get my friend to go there to get the document that described the courses there, which I suppose is you know, what you may have to do sometimes. But I said to myself, I can't be the first Jamaican immigrant mm -hmm. in this space. And, um, it, but then you know, that was back then. Things are, I'm sure, and I hope, a lot easier now with access, easy accessibility on the internet. Um, but I, I wish I knew um, a lot more than about then. Even things like navigating spaces for and um, for networking yes. um, in college. Because you know, as a student, I'm actually happy I had the college experience in Jamaica because I was able to just enjoy it, join clubs, yes. participate social events, you know, I was able to eat jerk chicken at two o'clock in the morning and using the computer lab overnight because we had that access. Here, it was like, go to work, go to school, go home. That's and it. sometimes school was at eight o'clock in the morning after an overnight shift at work, leaving at 2 a.m. to get to work, for, um, to get to school for leaving work at 2 a.m. and then having an 8 a.m. class. Sometimes it meant 
going to uh, work in a day and going to school, leaving a class at 10, 20 p.m. You know, there's this whole shift in the seasons where the sun would set by 4.30 and so on and so forth. So I kind of wish, you know, my, then my sister had started going through, but everybody was dealing with their own stuff. I wish someone was there to prepare me a lot better for yeah. what I could expect, the resources I could um, tap into, the funding I could possibly get, not, not just grants and loans, but even um, scholarships that I qualified for. So those are some of the things I really wish I knew then. If you could turn back the hand of time and talk to your 20, old self, 20 year old self, sorry, what would you say to her? And that's so important. That's the year you finished college. Um, it's also the year you migrated, which I did not know. So lots of big things happened for you that year. Um, talk to us about some of the things you were feeling. And if you could look back yeah. and just talk to her, what would you say to her now? No doubt should have been anxious moving to oh, a yes. brand new place, excited, having yes. finished a two-year de um, degree, um, yes. feeling accomplished because so young and accomplished so much. Um, yeah. what, what would you say to her now? Yes. Uh, back then, I actually finished the two years at 19. And the, the, how they had it structured was um, you would do the two years and you'd work for a year when I was working as a, a computer programmer and systems analyst. Then the following year, you'd go back and finish a third year and get your bachelor's degree, right? And so all that um, was kind of topsy-turvy. And so <laughs> what I would tell my 20-year-old self was, look, it's going to be all right. Yes. It, it's going to be all right. Um, close those chapters. Open some new ones. Yes. There were, there were a couple of chapters that I closed, and I am happy that I did. Um, I would have told my 20 year old stuff that you don't have to settle whatever whatever the, the, the situation and in many cases i didn't settle you know but in but in, in retrospect there are many cases where i did where it comes to friendships for example or just acquaintanceship or you know relationships etc um i would have told my 20 year old self breathe yeah embrace your new set of circumstances but my 20 year old self did have fun. Nice. You know, so I was able to link up with some friends from high school here. So my 22, my 20 year old self had that, but it was not full. It wasn't, it wasn't in the fullness of fun. It wasn't the yes. fullness of fun. If you know what I'm saying, there were so many gaps that even then I realized that I was missing these things and certain decisions that, you know, we make when we're not feeling full, um, you know, but we learn from those as well. So yeah, I would have tell, I told my 20 year old self, it's gonna be all right. Cause that was a year, that was a year. That was a year. I actually, I will share this. I did spend, I first, first, first migrated which was not the first time I came to this country. I cried. Wow. I just cried, you know? And so what was that? I don't know, it, you know, I feel tears are a language that we used to help us process stuff. It was like, whoa. But I find that crying can also be purifying yeah. if we allow it to be. So yeah, I would have told her it's gonna be all right. We all right and breathe. Yes. Yeah, we worry so much sometimes. But if we yes. only knew that in the end it all worked out for good for your good, um, and that you are doing great, just fine, then yes, you now we can just take it a little bit easier on ourselves. Yes. Um, you've already shared a little bit about what it was like going to a college in the U.S., rushed, 
not as enriching from a social perspective. But what was the most enlightening or shocking thing about your experience studying in the US? One year, as I was still doing computer science, I decided to do summer classes. Yes. And this particular one caught my interest. It was introduction to linguistics. It was, um, you had, uh, we had some, uh, what do you call them now? There's elect, there were electives and you know, so we could choose those. I was like, oh, this looks fascinating. So there I was in that class and there was an older white gentleman and I'm only saying it just you know, because of how, how we got to this point. Large, large class, very diverse. And he just turned to me and he said, cause we had to introduce ourselves where we were born if it wasn't United States and so on and so forth. And he said, so tell me, how do you say the boys in Jamaican? And it was a little, you know, I was like, we say the boys. And he said, no, you don't. <laughs> he said, no, you say the boy them. Yeah. And he said, them is the plural marker in your language. Mind blown. I had never before that moment considered my language yes. in that way. Very pivotal, very instrumental to me changing. And the following year that professor died, Oh. And I cried. And after that, I changed my major from computer studies to linguistics. Oh. And um, yeah, that's I did. A, it's, a, it's a thing for teaching English speakers of other language. So it was linguistics with a minor in secondary education and youth service. That led to me uh, eventually doing my master's thesis related to that topic, focusing on the language of the, the students from Jamaica. That in turn helped Instru uh, was instrumental for my PhD dissertation, which was about, um, I could tell the topic, it's uh, called, the title of my dissertation is um, Transformative Leadership, Eliciting Equity and Excellence in the Education of Immigrant Students from Caribbean Countries Where English is the Medium of Instruction. So I didn't limit it to language, it was the whole immigrant experience and not just Jamaica, but the whole Caribbean where English is the official language. So yeah, that one moment was just mind blowing. That totally changed your life. It totally changed the path you were on. Totally. Oh my God, that's an amazing experience. And may I add one more? Yes. Related to that, when I was in the linguistics, um, you know, in that program, I was the only black student there. And second to last class, I said to the professor, and I'm also saying this because, you know, race is a part of what we do as well. So we have to acknowledge that. And I'm saying this because I do want to acknowledge people who are white, who are also instrumental in my growth. Um, and this one professor, older white gentleman, tenured, I said to him, professor, with all due respect, I am tired of learning about Greek and Spanish and, and those languages. What about the African languages? Here's this book, we had a ch chunky textbook called World's Major Languages, all the African languages are in the back. And he said to me, we have nobody to teach them. I said, I have a coworker from Nigeria. He said, can you bring him in? I said, I can ask. And so it was, my coworker came with me from Long Island to Queens, sat in my class, spoke the language. He was drinking water from a fresh fountain. And the, at the end of that class, he said to us, rip up your, um, your curriculum, rip, rip, rip up the syllabus that I gave you. You're gonna do this instead. And he had us do a sociolinguistic project about our languages. And he said to me, please do not do English, do your Jamaican language. 
And there was one student in the class who only spoke English and he asked her to do a lesser known language from another region of the world that we'd never talked about. That was also pivotal because I knew the power of my voice growing up in, um, in high school in Jamaica. I went to St. Hughes High School. I learned the power of my voice as a student and I appreciated that beyond words can say. Well, those are two important lessons and takeaways. Um, just being open and responsive to new learning. You are yes. in a computer science program. I can't think of anything that's more opposite. <laughs> something that's alive and enriching and, you know, something that speaks. So here we have a programming language, which is non-human, right? So to speak. And here is linguistics positioning itself and you falling in love with the language yeah. and then also finding your voice as a student um, and as someone with a unique voice from a unique perspective and a unique place. Um, so that was just amazing. Education and lifelong learning is a distinguishing feature of who you are. So you're always studying. When you yeah. said that you love school, I smile to myself and I'm saying, hmm, Carrie sounds like she would keep on studying. <laughs> Trust me, I, I know you sound like you'd go back again. Where did you get this passion and drive for education and research? Um, and linked to that, was it a personal goal to complete your doctoral studies or was it to fulfill academic requirements? I'll answer the second part first about the goal. Yeah. So, I mean, I never grew up saying, ooh, when I grow up, I'm gonna be doctor whomever, you know? Um, I just was living life. Yes. And then one day in my class at the middle school, I, you know, I teach sixth, seventh and eighth graders. I've taught other great, uh, levels as well. I was saying, oh, we're going to talk about colleges and career and so on, so on, so forth. So I brought in my undergraduate gown, my master's gown, and my, my husband had recently graduated with his doctorate. So I brought in his gown and they were so intrigued. We looked at the thing. I'm like, you can do this, you know, scholarships and all of that. And then they're like, oh, wow, you know, touch the thing. And they're like, so cool. So, all right. So what about you? They said, what about you, Mrs. Craig? You talk about us, that so we can do this, but what, what, what about you? I was like, wait, what? Like, yeah, why, what, why aren't you doing your doctor? You're telling us we can do it. So I'm like, you know, that's a really good point. And then they, they went further. They said, how about you put on that gown? I said, like, but that's not my gown though. That's my husband. He said, it doesn't matter, put on the gown. But let's see it, put it on, put it on. So I had to put on my husband's cap and gown. Wow. And then they said, because they went further, can we get your phone to take a picture of you in it? I was like, stop. And they insisted. So to this day, I have a picture of myself in my classroom, posing in my husband's going, wondering, what, wait, wait, how did they flip the tables on me? And then a professor that I had for my master's, she was always like, okay, so you're done with the master's when you do any PhD. I'm like, time and money, time and money. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then she would, every so often, she'd ask me, so those were some factors. It's like, you know what? I could do this. I should do this. I love learning. Why not? I realized no time was the perfect time. And then one day it was just like, it's time, you know? So yeah. And then when I started, I had a, a, a student. That student was not only an English learner. She was a student with a disability. She yeah. had a learning disability. And she would just smile at me from time to time. And she's like, I can't wait till we become Dr. Grant. She's like, I don't care where I am in the world. You need to find me and tell me when you are Dr. Grant. And then I said to myself, you know, it's going to be a little easier for me to find her before she graduates from high school. So I, I think I should move along. Yes. And when I 
defended my dissertation, as soon as I told my husband, my mother, my sister, my daughter, so forth, I picked up the phone, I called at the high school and I said, I need to speak to so-and-so. And I told them what it was about. And I was on the phone and we were on the, um, they had one of them use their cell phone to call her. She's like, oh my God. And I had taken a picture with my cap and gown, you know, in preparation for that. And she's like, you did it. Oh my goodness, you did it. And you found me. I fulfilled my promise to her. So, you know, sometimes we emphasize how teachers impact students. Can I tell you how my students have just changed my life? Yeah. And that was one of the Wow. Yes, and they inspire you. That was Absolutely. such a humorous but yet inspiring story. If yours yeah. has a challenge, you have to rise to, and and you see, yeah. you just have to walk for others to follow, right? And so you're yeah. in a classroom and you're a leader. You're transforming to be, and you're saying to someone, "You can be a doctor. You can be a teacher. You can do your masters. You can have your PhD." And somebody turns around and says, "Why not you?" Absolutely. <laughs> It blows your mind. It causes you to think and you have no choice but to respond. Yes. That's amazing. And to the first one. Yes. Forgive me. I forgot a little bit. Would you mind repeating the first question again? Um, education and lifelong learning is a distinguishing feature of who you are. Where did you get this passion and drive for education and research? Okay. Seeing the gaps in the current system, both as a student, but Definitely. So as an educator, seeing where things could be, where we, where we could improve, um, where I can improve, where my colleagues can improve at all levels, whether you're teacher, member, staff, administrator at any level, building level, central level, uh, whether you're a board member, community member, so many, so many areas for improvement. And I find that research is often not embraced yeah. because people, it is a lot of work. And if I'll be frank with you, and I'm absolutely not bashing my education uh, field because I believe in accountability for myself and others. We, it is more difficult than it needs to be, both for me as an educator and for when I was a student. Um, and part of it is because we're not utilizing existing research um, to make things better, or we're not conducting research that we can you know, there's a type of research called action research, which educators yes. can in, in involve themselves in to make things better. And so we might say, oh, we're going to use research-based best practices. Okay, so which research, what makes it best for this district, and why are you not implementing it, even though you said you would? So I find that there's a lot of talk and some action, but not necessarily the right kind of action. And I, I find that to be unacceptable if I can be blunt while being diplomatic. So for me, I found out that I like to inquire about things, to question things, to ask why they should be so. I am not afraid to um, speak out. Now, speaking out comes with its challenges because when you speak out, you're on the risk of being blackballed, even if it's uh, concealed behind smiles, right? You run the risk of being considered a troublemaker. There's a book out there, which I won't tell the title because I'm not you know, promoting books on, on podcasts, but uh, good trouble, you know, as John Lewis said, is what we need in the system. Yes. But some people uh, consider that in a negative light because it means they'll have to work. So this is where my passion for education research in particular came in. I, it hit me one night because again, I love to inquire about things, to look into things, to I wasn't doing action research without even thinking about it. And um, that's part of it. And I also taught education research, uh, literacy research at the graduate level. I taught teachers uh, 
in the literacy research program, how to um, conduct action research in their schools in Long Island and New York City um, Department of Education. And so, yeah, it's just, I just love it. Awesome, awesome. What's your teaching style and or philosophy? I believe in transformative um, teaching, uh, leading teaching and learning. And that means basically um, doing so for social justice. Yes. So it's not about, okay, just, oh, here is English. What, what content am I going to use um, to share this particular lesson? Um, I, I believe in equity yes. for all. And I'm not just saying it, I, I live it. Um, and that includes anybody, regardless of your religious background, your sexual identity, um, your gender identity, your, um, your ethnic background, your skin color, the language you speak, it doesn't matter. I believe in equity for all. So when I, when I go into a classroom setting, for example, let's say it's Thanksgiving. I don't just show them the cultural part of Thanksgiving, but they would also understand that Thanksgiving day may be celebrated by many, but then there's also a day of mourning for indigenous groups, Native American, Native American Indians, different terminology called in the United States. So they need to be aware of that, right. you know? Um, there was a time I had to do content support for the sixth, seventh and eighth grade class at different times in math, science, social studies and ELA. And so when you're looking at wars, for example, so when you look at a social studies book, you know, I try to show them, consider it from different perspectives as well. Because you just might be from one of the countries that was at war with the United States, for example, and you may have heard it from this perspective. So here it is from this perspective, right? Even when you're looking at science, for example, in some cases, um, not just in science, but um, discoveries were attributed to people and it left out the contribution of other people. So it's kind of always like question your text. Right. They're written by humans, humans with various perspectives. And while their agendas may not be overtly, well, they may not have a, a hidden agenda, the curriculum matters. And many times the curriculum is not equitable. Absolutely. And this is something they're trying to change even at the New York State Education Department level. They're now pushing diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so people are still pushing back at that because for them, change is frightening. Um, and I must add that equity doesn't mean that the person who has your skin color is for you. You know, there's an expression out there, I'm not sure who to attribute it to, like, and it's all skin folk ain't kin folk. Yes. So, you know, it doesn't mean that someone who is, I'll just use a term that they're using a lot, black or brown, is necessarily going to be uh, promoting equity for black and brown students or even for black and brown staff members. Right. It doesn't mean that someone who is white is not going to promote equity, right? So we can't just look at what people say and what they look like. We have to do, look at what people actually do. We have to look at the real work. What is the real work um, to drive equity for everyone, for all? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, that's amazing. Um, I know you advocate for all your students. All your students are from diverse backgrounds. So they're, yes. they're, they're not just black, they're not just brown, some are Chinese, some are Indians. 
um, some, as, as, as you rightly say, they're English learners. So English is not their first language. So they're from different places all over the world. But you also advocate for the black student. Um, yes. Why is that important to you? And, and so to rephrase my question, you also advocate for the black student and students of immigrant parents. Absolutely. Why is that so important for you? Why is that such an important part of your work as an educator? It's, it's important for me because quite frankly, they've often been overlooked. I'm black and I'm an immigrant. And I encountered uh, experiences of racism. I encountered experiences of discrimination from a plethora of people, right? I also um, encountered, and some of them were not overt, Right. Lots of microaggressions, but you see what they are, and they can um, they can bring you down if they if you let them. Um, and so it's important for me to amplify any voice, uh, any student who's not being heard. Right. So when it comes to students, uh, immigrants, actually, my dissertation topic, the topic was long because the topic was partially uh, the topic of a guidance document from New York State Education Department. Right. They did not have a policy for immigrant students from Caribbean countries uh, where English is the official language, but it had a guidance document. And in that guidance document, they acknowledged that these students were historically underserved. Yes. They, they literally wrote that these students were disproportionately placed in um, programs for students with disabilities. Wow. Because a teacher, specifically English teacher, would say, wait, wait a second, you're from Jamaica, you're from um, St. Vincent de Grenadines, you're from Guyana. English is the official language there you don't sound like we sound, you're not writing like we write. And so therefore you must have a disability. So they know all this, mind you, they do not at this moment have a policy in place for those English learners. So, so then you have that piece. And so there's also funding. For us, right. they had Title III immigrant fund and Title III funds for English language learners. And sometimes districts, school districts may combine both. The problem is not all immigrants are English learners and not right. all English learners are immigrants. are immigrants. Right. And so you find that in certain settings, I won't call uh, spaces, but um, in certain major districts, it is required that a certain portion of this funding for the immigrant students be set aside for certain groups of immigrant students that may not also be English learners or officially acknowledged as English learners, but yet they may not have it. And I know this because I called and I made inquiries during my dissertation. Uh, and I'm like, okay, so it says that you're supposed to have it in some places that are supposed to like, I'm not sure what you're talking about. Um, I can't speak to that. So, you know, there's stuff on paper and that does not necessarily re um, reflect what's being done um, in real life. So immigrant experiences, as I mentioned before, includes things like culture shock, right? Yes. So for an immigrant student who's in the program for English language learners, we call it English as a new language, they will say, oh yes, you're from so-and-so. You may have had this difficult journey. You're, you may not be with your parents or guardians. Uh, for some of you, you may have crossed the border um, you know, in a certain manner. Right. For some of you, you're wealthy and you're fine and you may not need these resources, um, but they take care of them because they're aware of them. They're under the umbrella of a program. And, but then there are others who may speak English very well, a lot of students from the Caribbean are fully bilingual and they have a strong handle, even a well-versed handle on um, English, their version of English, um, which could be the Caribbean English or the British English. And so they segue nicely into American English. And so because they're not on the radar, their needs as immigrant students are overlooked. Right. They could have culture shock too. Yes. They could have issues reuniting with parents they haven't seen in years. 
workers too. Where are the services for them? So I have to look at that. And thankfully where I am, I've been allowed over time to talk to the students who they may see mm, here. She, she's from Jamaica too. She's from the region too. Um, let's talk about her. There was a time too that I was um, analyzing um, high school transcripts from other places in the Caribbean and even from countries such as Nigeria and other places. I did that for a while, several years ago, and that was very helpful. And so for black students, huh? The other pieces are so many nuances as well, right? Because then you, I learned, and we all learned that black can be a rather loaded term. Some people yes. want to be called black. Some people don't want to be called black. And then there are black Americans who were born here. There are black students who were born in the Caribbean or who identify as Caribbean because they're first generation American. They're black students from African countries. You know, and so the black experience is different. So we're not a monolith. No. So we have to also address those needs as well without encroaching on the space. Um, for their for their groups, for example, you know, even talking about on a broader scale, which is not necessarily included in the in, in the in the curriculum of the classroom, but the parents are certainly talking about it. Um, an issue, for example, such as reparations, then it's like, well, who gets that? And in what country? And is somebody here to take up the space that belongs to this group and that group? So there's work to do there too, even among the Black groups of students. And so our responsibility is, oh, and let's not talk about, let's do talk about Black Latinos, right? Or they present as Black, but ethnically or culturally, they present as Latinos, they're hardly represented when we talk about Latin America, Hispanic American heritage. We're the black people, you know? So they're erased in many settings, including in our classroom. So for example, we had concerns where there are people who are Latinos who are black or dark skinned and they totally reject blackness. Yes, I've, I've seen that, I've yes. heard that in my, my, my settings. And so, the work that needs to be done, even for students themselves. And then it's there's extensive. some students. Yeah. The it's, work it's, is, extent, it's extensive, yeah. It's, yeah, there's a lot of work to be done. And so we have to advocate for that. We have to have conversations for that in the school setting, in the district setting, in the community setting, in the state setting, in the nation. Uh, we have to have that and continue. And we're, we're having them, yeah. but not enough. True, absolute truth. How can we positively change the experience of the students in our classrooms? So our students come to us from, or students come to us from different homes, different backgrounds, different socioeconomic conditions, different countries, um, different languages and cultural. I currently live and work in Canada and I'm a Jamaican, right? And there's so many cultural barriers and language barriers, even as an adult. So sometimes, even for a child to transition or for a young person to transition to another culture. There are lots of barriers, barriers that we always can't see. Some of these barriers are invisible, um, but how can we positively change and shape the experience of the students in our classroom? Well, we can make sure that they're, we can do so many things, right? Yes. We can um, connect with them and their families as best as we can. And that's not always easy. Yes. That's not always easy at all. So, um, but we can make sure that they're represented in the curriculum. Absolutely. For me, for example, this year I have a student from um, Kuwait. And so 
while I would have done it regardless, I ensured that this year it was not just about um, Hispanic American Heritage Month from September 15th to October 15th, and then um, Black or African American Heritage Month in February. It was about Native American Heritage Month. So we they learned about indigenous peoples of the world. So yes. every continent represented there. Um, we looked at, of course, Hispanic American Heritage Month, um, African American and Black Heritage Month. We talked about all of that. We, we delved deeply into it. Women's History Month. Uh, and then we did Arab American Heritage Month. And I asked the student, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back or anything. I said, in the few years you've been here, two, three years you've been here, have you ever, you know, do you have a, had a conversation? Never, never represented. Yeah, and so we were talking about Ramadan briefly. It's like, oh, I'm fasting right now. And, you know, so, and unfortunately, I only have a few days for the week to do it, but I made sure I do it right now. They just finished um, Asian American Heritage Month last week. I was testing, but that was their, their lesson. Um, and we're going to be doing Caribbean American Heritage Month. And so they're not doing that in the broader school setting, but I can bring that to my classroom setting, you know? Um, so there's that. At the same time, however, what student, what teachers can do in their classroom can be limited by what's yes. happening or not happening in the broader school setting. So anyone, it's not enough to have a one person trying this change. Yes. It has to be systematic. It has to be because otherwise you only, there are nine peers in a day, you only have this person for one period. And so let's say there are nine periods, including lunch, so there are eight teaching periods. If only half of the teachers, and that's a large number, are really delving into making sure students are represented into, in, the, in the curriculum. No matter, you can have science, math, representation matters there too. Yes, absolutely. Um, if it's not happening and it's not expected and it's not who we are and what we do, then, you know, sometimes a teacher may question if what he or she's doing or they're doing in their classroom is making a difference. What can we do? Just keep doing what we do and keep advocating for change on a larger level. Sometimes change can be hampered by leadership. Sometimes change can be hampered by systems because some leaders are themselves hampered. And so that's why transformative leading, teaching and learning is crucial to education. And I'm citing someone that I don't, don't have all the names here with me. It's not just my words, it's Bosk and uh, Kim and, and, and some other people I'm citing, but it's, um, it's in my dissertation as well. Absolutely. Um, what are what has been some of your most rewarding teaching moments? Huh. There have been so many. Yeah. You know, like I mentioned before, having them come back. Um, oh wow! Even recently, with um, remote learning. Yes. You know, just having students just randomly saying good morning. And sometimes, you know, I, I graded a paper, I posted it on social media a couple of times, like I graded homework and I'm going through and it's, you know, sometimes I do it after hours and it could be nine o'clock and I'm grading them. And then I saw on the back of a, a homework sheet, I love you, Dr. Grant, with a little heart. I'm like, oh. Yes. So those little things, those little unexpected moments of, hey, you know, like a little good morning. Yes. When you're feeling a little like, those are the things that make it rewarding. When I see a student, for example, they're taking their state exams now. And so that determines if they stay in the program or if they move up a level. And that's good too. When I, when I see the scores come out, I know it's not all about scores, but look, it matters too. It shows growth. 
it opens their schedule up to so many other things. And when I see that, I'm like, you, you did that. You know, that's rewarding as well. Amazing. Um, what would you say to persons who are contemplating entering the teaching profession? What Don't is- do it. No, I'm, kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> what, what advice? That's okay. What advice would you give them? How can they make it effective, um, rewarding, and meaningful? What's a single trait you need to bring, or a few traits they need to bring to the classroom, and just to them own, their own selves, right? How yes. can they make it effective and meaningful and impactful? I would encourage them to, if I meet them while they're still in pre-service, like before they've yes. actually started teaching, talk to me about what you're learning in your, um, your teacher training session. No, tell them you need to know about this, 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 and that. Um, ask them for these resources. When you go to student teaching, because of course you have to do, first you have to do classroom observations, and then you have to do student teaching and you have to take all these state assessments before you can become certified, as you know. Um, don't just settle for what you're learning in the classroom. Because see, frankly, when I finished my teacher preparation program, I wasn't as prepared as I should have been. And nobody will ever be fully prepared. But if you have a professor who has not put his or her, they're all into the session and you leave your experience to that, that could be a problem. So for pre-service teachers, do not limit yourself. Look at the state requirements for your particular fields. Go to this session. Um, try to go to an education research. Join, I know it might be, might cause an arm and a leg to join some of these professional um, uh, uh, groups. Join them if you were, um, English language, teacher of English language learners, join that professional group. Um, commit yourself to professional development training. Sometimes mm-hmm. you're out of your district if you can. Meet other people, see what they're doing in other spaces, go online, uh, find a community of committed educators, um, read up. Uh, one of the places I, I lived on was the New York State Education Department website. And I would go to where the board, the board of regents did their meetings. So I would look at their meetings. What are they talking about? Because then now immediately I went beyond middle school, right? Because they deal with everything, including really? nursing, other professionals, not just educators. Like, what are they talking about? What decisions are they thinking about making? And they'll put out um, surveys for you to do and uh, involvement for you to things to get involved with go to those sessions. I mean, I've been in sessions before and I stood up and I remember once they were like, they were chastising the teachers like, oh, you guys didn't fill out the survey. And I got up and like, well, all due respect. The website is called Engage New York and you haven't engaged New York teachers. I just happened to look at your website and I just happened to see the survey and I just happened to do it. But where where did you know where all of us work? You know all our names. And all of a sudden you're like, ooh, all right. So we have to take steps to make sure that we get this information to the BOCES and the BOCES passed out to schools. I'm like, yeah, so I'm gonna hold you accountable too. Right up there at New York State Education Department in a diplomatic way. But then I'm gonna be part of the solution. So yes. I found opportunities to be involved in the state testing. So then I've served on committees for the same step, test that we're doing, the New York State English as a Second Language Achievement Test for students I'm given. So like, I'm not gonna complain how the tests are this or the tests are that, no. I'm going to apply and find out about the process and work on these committees so I can be part of the solution. So I would encourage any teacher, and I've told them this too in faculty meetings, have you applied 
to be on a committee about the test for which you are complaining? Yes. Have you filled out a survey when it comes out? How regularly as a professional who should be keeping up with their craft? Do you follow the websites, the, the social media platforms to stay abreast? We sometimes have our opinions and that's wonderful, but your opinions have to be coupled with facts. It has to be grounded in facts and research. Yeah, it yes. has to be evidence-based. Yes, solution-oriented. Because it's a part of, it sounds cliche, but it's true. You're either part of the primary part of solution. Now you can vent, you should, you should complain. But to whom are you complaining? And what are your, 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 your suggestions for improvement? And once you've made the suggestions, what are you doing in your own classroom um, to make it right? So I firmly believe that educators should know that you're not just teaching your subject. Right. You are ethically bound to do no harm, just Absolutely. like the medical profession. You're Absolutely. bound to do no harm to the, the students whose lives you're affecting. A lot of these students, they're gonna see us, they see us way more than they see their family members. Absolutely. And when we send our children or our nieces and nephews, et cetera, into the classroom, it's a huge risk. Absolutely. Absolutely. You That's know, and I'm I not mean. saying it. So yeah, so we wanna ensure from all levels, mm -hmm. Pre-service, pre in-service, you know? What type of professional development are you getting or are you not, you know? And um, so, so th that's what I would do. But yeah, yeah I was kind of sort of kidding before when I said, don't do it. But <laughs> seriously, if your heart is not in it, if you're don't only do doing it. it for money or you're doing it for power or you're not trying to hear other people's um, perspective and you're not trying to be transformative, then don't come, please don't come. And if you're, if you're currently in it, and you're not about that, I would ask you to consider whether this is for you because it's not for the faint of heart and students and, and, and their families' lives are at stake. What you do or you do not do in the classroom right now has a major impact on the life and the livelihood of every student in front of you. When you discount a student's capabilities, that determines how they feel about themselves, that yes. determines what path they think they can be on, it determines what skills they feel they have to offer, it, it may devalue their self-worth or empower them, it, it, it determines what types of jobs they're able to get or whether they can become entrepreneurs later, it determines the amount of money they're capable of making, it determines the lifestyle they'd be able to live. So don't just think you're coming in there teaching English or math or whatever, and that you only have them for one year and you only have them for one period. It's a lifetime it's commitment. A lifetime. So bear that in mind when we go, and we're humans, don't get me wrong. We're humans as teachers, we make mistakes. We have our own issues to, to follow and we have our own advocacy from us, trust me, for our own students, but that's what it's all about. And if you're not about that, then consider if this is the profession for you powerful words and carry and not just for teachers but I also think for parents and for guidance counselors um, oh yeah absolutely powerful um I'm doing a course right now with teachers and guidance counselors it's a two-year post degree in career um career counseling and guidance studies and that's one of the yeah. fundamental things and it has always been one of my guiding principles and philosophies but now I believe it wholeheartedly I write it everywhere it's in all of my papers um, and there's this, there's this author, Dr. Green, I think it's Ross Green, um, powerful work from him just coming out of, you know, children do well if they can. Um, and he takes us through different tools that we can use. 
But as we transition and as we grow in the course, that's one of the things, and I just did ethics last term, that's one of the things that we have agreed on and that has been just brought forth to the fore. Um, ethically, we are bound to do students no harm. Students must, when they come to us, they must leave better than we got them. And you were making all of those essential points about how we either discount them or give them value, empower them or disempower them. And, and, and it might just sound so cliche, but it is so true. If a student believes that they can, then they will. Yes. And if we tell them that they can, then they will. So yes. really powerful. And thank you so much for just sharing that. Um, and if that I, is really so good. Yeah. yeah. If I, I'm glad you brought up the school counselors. There, I also address them in my dissertation. So yeah. my, my participants included English teachers, school counselors, and school leaders. Because school counselors, as you know, play such a pivotal role. Student voice. Yes. You have to give the student a voice in your classroom. Yes. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, you do so many things, and, and and there were different points when I know you were educating on different levels, both high school and university, preparing students in middle, high, undergrad, um, and postgrad, because you, you also do postgrad work. Um, but talk to us about the work that you do at your own company, Center for Research and Equitable Development, LLC. Talk about what was the inspiration behind creating this business? Um, I know it's formalized, it's an official business, it's registered, um, and you're doing good work. Talk to us about how you got started um, and the kind of work that you do there. I got started, and thank you for asking. I got started um, because I have the skills, the knowledge, the skills, and the disposition to lead. And I do have certification, not just a teacher of English for students of other, um, speakers of other, I'm sorry, teacher of English to speakers of other languages, which is TESOL. I have um, certification in New York State as a school building leader and a school district leader. And so I've used the school building leader once one summer when I was um, the assistant principal for the summer program. And I decided that I needed to use my leadership skills in a way that would not be um, stifled to fill gaps that I experienced and that I observed in leadership. Um, so that business uh, focuses on two things education research and equitable development. On the education research side, it's geared for students who are doing any type of education research um, activity. So for example, if you're in high school doing AP courses and doing AP research and you need some ethical support to get you through that, because I will never do your work for you ever. Absolutely. Everything has to be done within the confines of your um, code of conduct. Yes. But I also believe that a lot of research related stuff is um, difficult for no reason. Yes. So um, I helped you mystify a lot of the process. So you could be an undergraduate student doing a research paper, a graduate student doing your master's thesis, or a, a doctoral, doing your doctorate, uh, a doctoral student uh, completing a dissertation. So I helped with that. Um, when I started, it was the summer, uh, I opened a business in the summer of 2019. And then last year we had the pandemic. So as in many places, we had to, to breathe, but it's open. I've helped doctoral candidates who have graduated, some of whom had been, um, one of whom in particular had been stuck for a very, very, very long time. So I was happy um, about that. And I've spoken with other stu um, students because I do offer um, free consultation. So I'm right. back up and running. Never really left, but you, know, you also have to balance um, what's going on with the times and many businesses got um, 
heavily impacted. I am now a minority women-owned business enterprise and MWBE certified in Nassau County, and I'm super excited about that. I submitted some information personally for trademark, which I'll be using in my business and elsewhere, called um, E4ED, which is uh, three E's, um, you know, educate, elucidate, um, emancipate, uh, and um, evaluate, not necessarily in that order. And so I'm looking forward to receiving the trademark later on. And um, on the equitable development part, this is for um, consulting for individuals or organizations. So the individuals could be teachers, school leaders, school counselors who would want to have some idea like, okay, I may or may not be having the support in my school setting, my district setting, but I know I need to do something for me. You know, it's back to what we talked about earlier. Sometimes systems are, are, are stifled, right? And so you have to find out, this may not be happening on my district level or my school level, now I'm gonna have to do it on my individual level because I have to do what I have to do ethically. And so that's for them as well. Or you just wanna have some information and you need some guidance. It could be for uh, school building leaders, school district leaders, any educational organization or related to education such as parent teachers organizations, uh, or any community-based organization who'd like um, some, some support, some evaluation for us to conduct research or show you how to conduct research or show you how to evaluate your existing programs. For example, um, right now the New York State Education Department put out a statement recently that they're um, really going to go all in on promoting diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, in New York State education schools. So, I'm sorry, in New York State's schools, you know, which are all under the purview of the NYSED. And so that's right up my, my, my alley. Um, I can help schools with that. Of course, I'm currently employed. And so all the work that I do is ethical, right? Because I have to distance what I'm currently um, employed to do with my business. And so I make sure that I do not encroach on um, one work hours, but all, all things are handled during my um, business hours, my business time by um, by me and any other person whom I may need to bring on board. So that's what I do in my business. So it's flexible, it's based on the need of the individual or the or personnel in the organization. And I am absolutely ready, knowledgeable. And you know, we talk about learning, oh my goodness, even last summer in the thick of everything, I was ordering books and reading about evaluation and empowerment. I have a stack of books that I've gone through and another stack that I have to go through. And so learning doesn't have to take place in a school setting for me. Absolutely. I just love and it thrills me to learn all these new things and implement them. So thank you for asking about that. Awesome. How do we contact you for this side of the business? Okay, your so business, yes. I'm how do we contact you? Yes. So the Center for Research and Equitable Development, LLC, mm -hmm. um, I call it CRED sometimes for short, even though that's not doing business as it's just what I call it. We're available on Facebook. You can go by that name or you can search at um, CRED for Ed, that's C-R-E-D, the number four, and then E-D. You can also search CRED for Ed, same letters and number, uh, C-R-E-D, number four, then E-D on Instagram and on Twitter, and on LinkedIn. For LinkedIn, you can also just type Center for Research and Equitable Development, LLC. So we're available on those platforms. Uh, the website is www 
CRED, C-R-E-D, researchcenter.com. So that's www.credresearchcenter.com. You can email me at paygrant at credresearchcenter.com. And if you'd like to call us, it's 516-253-5650. Awesome and amazing. Just when you were giving your email, the audio went a little bit. Do you mind repeating your email and your number? So the email address is k, as in Carolee, grant at credresearchcenter.com. And the telephone number is 516-253-5650. Awesome. Um, we, we're going to look back a little bit as we wrap up. And we're going to talk just briefly about what it was like for you in 2020 um, as an educator and as an entrepreneur and just as a mother balancing and a wife balancing so much. How did 2020, you just shared it, slow down your business just a little bit, but you've since gotten going again and you're, and you're busy and you're ready and you're open and engaged and willing to take on work. But what was it like for you in 2020? How did it affect your personal, family and business life? And just together with that is one, what is one life impacting lesson that you've learned in 2020 that you want to share with our listeners? 2020 was almost unreal. 2020 came with personal and professional and just challenges as you know, pandemic to top it all off. And so without getting into um, uh, too much details, um, you know, every once in a while, your your body will say to you, hmm, I think I think I, I, um, a body part might say, you know what, I think I'm going to, um, you know, act up a little bit. Yes. So, um, you know, I had several procedures in 2020, mm -hmm. planned and unplanned. And so there was at one point where I had to, I was um, healing for about nine weeks. Yes. And so... I had to learn to stay still yes. and look out the window. And um, thank God I did not get the virus. Yes. And so I learned the beauty of being still. Now, mind you, my body was still. And sometimes my mind was racing and I was still checking email, even though, you know, I was not at work. I was on leave and all that stuff because that's how my brain is. Yes. But being still and looking outside at the trees and the little birds that flit by and hearing, um, being thankful for the ability to relearn certain things and then um, just walk back into it. Um, taking setbacks in stride. Yes, absolutely. That's a powerful and, one. That's a powerful uh, one, Carrie. And one of the biggest things I learned was um, embracing scars. Yes. Embracing scars. Um, my journey last year involved surgical procedures with an S, pluralized. Mm -hmm. And it was a little scary at first, but for some reason um, with the, the doctors, they made it so, you know, not as scary as it could have been. And um, so as the scars improved and, you know, you, 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 it's like scars mean there's healing taking place. Yes. Um, it means, and I know I'm saying it, I'm not trying to um, downplay the experiences that are behind scars, right? Because some healing, some, some, the causes of some scars are planned. 
and they're positive. Like in the case of what I went through, because like, I made a choice for some of them and some of them just came upon us, but I still you know, made a choice and that's for healing. Right. Um, and the, but there are some people who receive scars in a very negative way right. that they did not deserve and they did not plan. And these scars can be physical and they can be emotional or otherwise. But to push forward, we have to examine scars. Scars in the physical sense is a protective layer yes. over a wound. That is healing. That is healing. Yes. That's one of the biggest takeaways I learned. And so I learned to try to be, yes, you, you cry and you go through your pain and you do the things you need to do. But if you can get in that mindset, like, okay, I'm going to cry today. The ebb and flow, the natural ebb and flow of life. Don't try to, don't try to, some people don't like it when you, when you, you go through those ebb and flows. You know, some people think you must be happy and joyous all the time. And if you ever look sad or if you ever look downcast or if you ever wonder, oh, no, 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 just be, no, be you, breathe, experience what you're experiencing, work through it. You know, if you need to go on a spiritual path with it or you need to have prayer of people who are um, mean you well, go for that. If you need to, for me, I incorporated classical music and other music and, um, you know, those, those um, scented um, plugins that gave me, you know, peace and rest. And I followed instructions and I was pampered. And as, as it so happened, my, you know, we were homebound. And yes. so the, 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 the path that I thought I would be on by myself, it turned out that I had others in my yeah, space. My family was, yeah. I was not alone. I was not alone. So I also learned that even in a pandemic, death and destruction and disease all around us we can also even in those tough times give thanks yes for the, the blessings that we do have absolutely. even in the pain absolutely awesome thank you so much for sharing that and just for being vulnerable and being open about what you went through um at a time when many are struggling mentally emotionally financially and physically how can we as thought leaders and educators inspire hope? How can we help others build courage and resilience? I think as leaders, yeah. we can inspire hope by first purposing in our hearts, not to stress others out. Yes. Just put it up there like that. Yes. You know, what you're not gonna do is on the one hand tell me, we love you, we yes. respect you, 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 and then bring stress to onto the person. Right? So we just have to be mindful and we're humans. Look, we are humans and we all get it wrong and that's okay. We're gonna have our moments and that's gonna impact people and that's okay. Right. Or what thought leaders should not deliberately do, leaders in general, no matter where you are, is put stress on other people. Right. And that may mean you're gonna have to take care of yourself first. Right, absolutely. So that I mean therapy if it's affordable. And in many cases, um, I know in our country, I think if you have insurance, there's some coverage because of the pandemic, seek therapy and children will need it too. Um, yes, more than it, ever, more than ever. Yes, yes. I encourage it. And um, if you can't afford that or you don't have the time for that, and a lot of it is available online, then have a trusted person that you can vent to who you will not burden because you might vent to someone and that adds to that person's stress. So you wanna be able to talk to 
to someone who you will not also burden, right? Absolutely. Um, you know, I wrote that recently. Just, I wrote that recently. Sorry, sharing without sharing in a way where you don't leave people worse off, or sharing yes. in a way where people can handle it. You know, where you don't yes. burden them. Yeah. Yes. Find the things that give you peace. Yes. Take some time out. Absolutely. Unplug. Yeah. If you're in a position and you have a job and they give you mental sick days or mental health days, take it. Protect your availability. It's okay to say no. Yes. It is okay to you must have boundaries. Absolutely. You know, and there are some people who feel you must always be available to them and you must always work you know, in the middle of the night. And so, for example, if you're in a job and you're expected to do these 10 things and then they add five more, speak up. Yes. And if you feel you fear speaking up because maybe as a teacher, you're not tenured to speak to your union. Yes. And if your union is not working for you, because look, the people who are elected and appointed to advocate for you do not always do the work. I know that I've experienced it then you do the next best thing and do what you have to do to protect your space and to protect your peace. It may not be possible, but at the end of the day, if you drop down and die, as they've said often, your, your position will be in the newspapers. I'm quoting others who have said it, and there's so many people who have experienced that. So be mindful of your space, your peace, protect your peace. Some of us need to check out our social media activities. Some of us need to put certain things in places and people and pause and open ourselves up to others. Take walks, you know, anything you can do to preserve your peace and to promote your purpose. Yes, you said it. You said quite a mouthful. You said everything I've wanted to say and mm -hmm. ask. You have pretty much answered my next couple of questions. Um, protect your peace, set good, healthy boundaries. Um, I know you think you might be speaking to teachers, but you're not only speaking to teachers. And that last point that you said was just so powerful about saying no to taking on additional tasks and just advocating for yourself and finding ways to protect you yes. and to protect and to protect the space within which you work and live, um, yes. cultivating friendships that are meaningful, yes. closing off those that are not and really opening up to yourself to those who will enrich you and nourish you. Um, just so much you said, so many, so many valuable nuggets that I'm sure our listeners will appreciate. Um, what's next for Carrie Lee? What's next for Carrie Lee? I'm open to where God wants to lead me. Yes. I've always been ready. I've always been prepared. Um, sometimes I work through the night. I'm trying to do better, you know, getting a little more rest. Just working in the background after my other work hours, preparing, because you know uh, I believe in preparation. Yes. Um, and so I, I plan that. I don't always say out loud what it is I'm doing to many people. I don't always, um, you know, put it out there. Sometimes I wait Always working. I see opportunities um, opening up. Um, being ready. I'm ready for clients. Absolutely. Both individuals, organizations, I'm working toward that. I'm looking forward to just um, soaring uh, in my business. I'm looking forward to continuing in the public education field in whatever way um, my next path, um, my continued journey, I should say, will lead me. I 
I don't want to be in a situation where I jump from the frying pan into the fire, so to speak. Mm-hmm. You know, some people, you know, have said, you know, you know, you have your PhD in educational leadership. And um, people have to understand that in some settings, um, the fit has to, in all settings, the fit has to be right. Absolutely. And one of the things you learned is not always about titles. Right. You know, uh, you can do the work without a title and you have to take titles cautiously. You have to, you have to be purposeful when seeking to um, put your head in the ring, so to speak, for certain positions. And some things, if you may put your head in the ring and it doesn't work out, then it's not for you. Absolutely. Because if you have given it your best shot and you have prepared for it, and if you, if you believe in prayer, you have prayed about it and uh, the door has, has closed for you, it's okay. Yes. It's not because you're not ready and you can still continue to continue to grow as a person and as a professional, right? But make your own space too. It's part of what I did with opening the business. You don't have to wait for other people to put, you know, call you to a table. There's a, there's a, also another photo there. Create your own table. And it's not about competing. It's about using your skills to help others. So, um, those are those are the things I am ready and waiting to do. So if you're out there listening and you can avail yourselves, um, we have already uh, told uh, the audience. I want you to share. Can. I want you to share that again, because um, there might be persons who might be interested in working with you in the U.S., in Canada, um, all over the world. There are lots of students who are working on research. Um, and I, I like what you said. It doesn't have to be as difficult as it is, but the process is not so clear. So the process does need some demystifying, some clarification, no matter how gifted you are. I just found, I did my master's in 2010, 2012, and I found, I think it was about approximately 40 of us who were studying, we all needed help in research. All, every single one of us, from the brightest to the most gifted to those who had had experience, you just need help to navigate the research space. And so I know when I saw you launch your business a few years ago, I know there's a space for you. I know there's such a great need, um, especially in the community of Blacks and immigrants and just helping them to do scholarly work um, yes. and to defending your own work and producing work that is ethical. I like yeah. what you said. Um, yes. I also teach, and a lot of people may have challenges with sometimes how strict we are and how ethical we are. But I always say to parents, I don't do students' homework. No. I just can't. It's not within me. Um, and even not, just, even not just high school, but at the university level, I have found that it's a new and growing trend. And I'll say to people, I'll guide you. I'll help you to brainstorm. I'll help you to create a map, an image that you can use to begin your work from. But we don't do people work for them. Mm-hmm. But the kind of service that you offer, it's not that. It's guidance. It's a yes. theoretical foundation within which we can build on and navigate out into the world. Um, it's clarification, it's concept building, it's it's everything. And so it's so very well needed. Um, and I thank you for forming that business, but I want you to share it again one more time with the world. The name of the business, what you do, where we can find you. Thank you for the opportunity again. It is Center for Research and Equitable Development. We offer services for students doing any kind of research work, whether at high school, undergrad, even if you're, um, when I say undergrad, that includes doing your two-year associate's degree, your bachelor's degree, 
for graduate school, your master's degree, and certainly for your doctorate, whether it's a PhD, EDD, any type of doctorate, primarily if it's education-based. And so we offer coaching for the for students. We also offer coaching and consulting for educators, and that includes teachers, uh, school counselors, leaders. Uh, if you're in another um, role and you're an educator, you're welcome as well. So for example, you could be a school psychologist or a social worker working in another space, even a teacher assistant, anything. You're a substitute teacher, you want to hone your craft, you're, uh, we welcome you as well. Um, and so for organizations, they include school building personnel, like as an organization, not just as an individual, school district personnel, uh, community-based organization given education programs, it could be daycare, it could be tutoring programs, after school set settings, parent-teacher organizations, um, PTA, I'm sorry, organizations, or PTO as they call it sometimes, or PTSO or PTSA, because it involves students. Uh, school boards, we're ethical because school boards are governed by rules as well. Um, but certainly the services would apply if, if ethical and if appropriate. And so you can reach us at on Facebook, Center for Research and Equitable Development. You can also uh, search for CRED for N, that's C-R-E-D, the number four, E-D. And you can use Cred for Ed on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. LinkedIn, you can also look for the company name, Center for Research and Equitable Development. Our website is www.credresearchcenter.com. The email is kgrant at credresearchcenter.com. And the telephone number is area code 516-253. 5650. If you're con if you're calling outside of units United States, you put, put a one before that. And so it's area code 516-253-5650. That's also a fax as well, fax number. Thank you so much for allowing me to share the contact information again. My pleasure. It's my absolute pleasure. It has been my pleasure talking with Dr. Caroline Grant. I heard so much today. I learned so much, not just about education and research, but about important life lessons and values that we can take with us in all spheres of our life and wherever we go. Some of the gems that have stuck with me and that I wanted to reshare with you again are the importance of ongoing education and professional development, the importance of being at peace with yourself, saying goodbye, closing spaces appropriately, um, the importance of helping others along our journey. And just in moments of difficulty, learning to be still learning to see the beauty of just being still and just resting in that moment of growth, change, or whatever it is that's taking place, taking, set, taking setbacks in stride and embracing our scars. This episode is sponsored by D-Sharp Thought Coaching Services. If you know someone who is between the ages of 18 to 45 and who benefit from my academic advising and career coaching services, please send me an email at dsharp2013 at gmail.com or connect with me on my website and I'd be happy to talk with you. It has been my absolute pleasure talking with Dr. Carolee Grant. Thank you for coming and sharing with us today, Dr. Grant. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Do show us some love by sharing our podcast. If you know someone who'd enjoy a dose of sisterly inspiration, stay tuned for next week's episode when we talk to another sister who's just like you. Until next time, be kind to yourself and others. Mm -hmm.